Hello and welcome back, or welcome to, if it's your first time listening, to Author Conversations presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Jonathan Foster. Maine has never been regarded as a pirate haven, but only because witnesses were few and far between. With a rugged coast and more than 4,000 offshore islands, Maine's dark waters attracted sea raiders like Dixie Bowl from the 1600s through colonial times. Pirate treasure still awaits discovery in Pittsburgh and Machias, and pirate deceit prompted a massacre in ancient Fort Loyal. The infamous Captain Kidd may have prowled the waters off Deer Isle, while farther down the coast, a woman and a bloodthirsty band of cutthroats lured ships to disaster at Isles of Shoals. Award-winning investigative journalist Greg Latimer separates historical fact from fiction and leads readers on an adventure through the state's foggy and treacherous past. Pirates and Lost Treasure of Coastal Maine will be available June 15, 2020. Greg, pirate history has always interested me, even before the Disney movies. My wife and I's wedding reception was pirate-themed. Instead of a guest book, our guests signed a pirate flag. But this podcast isn't about my fascination with them. It is about you and your book. First, where did your interest in pirate history come from? Some years back, I, I started producing uh, events as part of my line of work. And one of the events I produced was a pirate event here in Maine. And um, that fell into learning about pirate reenactors and then pirate history. And then it just went on from there. And uh, I just found it very, uh, uh, very interesting. Uh, you know, these were people that lived by their own rules, rugged individualists. And uh, I also was fascinated with the fact that there is so much pirate history that is known but not known because it's not what people listen to about pirates. Um, that the real history of pirates is uh, really much more fascinating than the stories that are told and told again. Yeah, speaking of part of that pirate history, it kind of goes into geography. You know, people think about pirates of the Caribbean, but a lot of it has to do with geography. For instance, here in South Carolina, we know pirates operated. Um, Steed Bonnet, Blackbeard, uh, uh, and Bonnie herself might have been from the low country of South Carolina. And we, of course, know up the coast in North Carolina was where um, Blackbeard met his demise. And Maine, as you've shown, has a history of pirate trade as well. Was that pirate trade seasonal? Um, in Maine, yes. Uh, pretty much everything seasonal in Maine. Um, but the pirate trade was also seasonal in the Caribbean, and it all worked together. Um, just like today, there's hurricanes and hot weather uh, down in the Caribbean uh, during the winter. Uh, excuse me, during the summer. And um, those fellows that were operating down there would often sail north, um, passing Maine, if not stopping in Maine, because there's several islands that were very popular because they had some fresh water. Um, and uh, many of the pirates would raid uh, the French uh, establishments up in Nova Scotia and along the Canadian coast, as well as raiding some of the shipping uh, here in the Maine area. And then on their way back down south uh, in the springtime, uh, there was a lot of shipping coming in from England at the time, and that also made for a productive commerce rating. I got you. Now, I want to start talking about some of the pirates themselves. Now, no matter what, life was hard at sea during the 17th and the 18th century, but life aboard of a pirate ship was preferable to lord life aboard of a merchant ship or a naval vessel. Can you tell us why that is? Well, merchant ships and naval vessels were under a very strict hierarchy. Um, the work was hard and dangerous. Um, food was uh, uh, sometimes uh, lacking or not very attractive. Um, about the only uh, 
the only good thing about being in the Navy is you received a ration, a daily ration, at least in the, in the British Royal Navy, of a uh, quart of small beer, which is a low-alcohol beer, and a pint of rum every day. So it must have been an interesting time. Um, in terms of the merchant ships, uh, physical abuse of the crew members was, uh, was not common, and uh, pay was low. And at any time, a merchant ship could be boarded by a Royal Naval ship and have members of the crew pressed into naval service against their will. Um, on pirate ships, it was uh, pretty much a party when everyone went, whenever one was available. And um, pirate crews also voted uh, for their leadership as well as the courses they would take and uh, quite a number of other things. Pretty much anything could come under a vote of the crew. Yeah, it really was almost a, the first form of democracy or republic on this side of the ocean. Right. It was a pure form of democracy as opposed to the English parliamentary style government um, where one man uh, each had a vote. And it's also important to remember that, uh, particularly at this time, the Caribbean was the crossroads of the world. Um, and many pirate ships traveled down into South America, over the west coast of Africa, into the Indian Ocean, uh, as well as up north to uh, Canada. And so pirate crews were um, international, interracial, um, and and it didn't matter where you came from or who you were, you still got to vote on a pirate ship. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting point. A lot of people uh, don't know about it. But let's get to some Maine pirates. Dixie Bull, Maine's first recorded mm-hmm. pirate. His story sounds to me, when I was reading it, about a man who reached his breaking point. And, of course, we want folks to buy your book for all the details in his story, but can you share a little bit with us about what brought him to that point of turning pirate? Well, yes, essentially he he met um, another pirate, perhaps uh, but a French pirate um, from the Canada area, and that pirate took all of his goods that he'd come to trade to the Native Americans with. Um, Dixie Bull was intent on... um, scoring some furs while he was here in America. He was what's called a tanner back in England, and he wanted to return to England and make a fortune off the uh, off the furs. And uh, so that that was his particular breaking point. It just sounds like a man who was... He reminded me of a guy who was just as down on his luck, and he had nowhere else to turn. Uh, it almost reminded me of the character that uh, I think it was Michael Douglas Pay played in that movie, uh, Falling Down. He came out in the early 90s. Uh, I almost felt bad for him and sorry for him and understood where, where he was coming from. Not that that was a good course of action to take, but you you did kind of feel for Dixie Bull uh, when you're reading that story. True. Um, you, you, you would hope that there would be other ways he could yes. resolve that, but it was yes. not that kind of world in yeah. those days, and, and people thought people had different thought patterns when it came to things like this. Yeah. He originally thought he could retake his goods from French, and um, that didn't work out either. No, and there's not, you know, there wasn't a local police station or law enforcement agency he could exactly go to um, on the no, frontier at it, that time. Excuse me. It was on the frontier at that time too, so it was, you know, it was, I guess, a form of frontier justice in a way. Oh yeah, it, it was, it was, it was the frontier. Um, there was, uh, there was not a lot happening out here. That's one of the reasons you don't. Um, about a lot of pirates in Maine because there wasn't a lot of people to talk about them. And pirates were also notorious about not keeping logs because they could be used as evidence against them. Um, in fact, it was um, 
it was said in many of the articles of agreement on pirate ships that no man should write anything down that couldn't be posted on the mainmast. Well, it's funny you mentioned evidence, because that brings us to Captain Kidd. Uh, now, your chapter on Captain Kidd, and we actually won't get to the evidence part, because we want people, again, to buy the book to read about it. Um, but I thought I knew a bit about Captain Kidd. Uh, and Captain Kidd would be employed by the King of England and investors to hunt pirates. And really, he wasn't supposed to do much else. He's not supposed to harass anybody who's allied, who is an ally of the English. And I knew it took him for a while to get to his hunting grounds, Greg, but I thought it was mainly because he's visiting his wife for so long. But will you regale us with a story of what caused the first delay on his way out to sea, leaving (laughs) England? Yep. Do you want me to go over that? Yes, I do. That would be great. (laughs) Okay, well, he was intending to uh, head straight out of London down the west coast of Africa, around the Horn, and up into the Indian Ocean where he was going to be operating. And he had a full crew on board. It's important on, on ships of war, that a lot, especially in those days, that there be a large crew because at any time you could lose a large complement of your crew to disease or casualties in battle. And so it's important to have a pretty big crew. Anyway, as he's heading down the Thames River, um, there, uh, they pass uh, the uh, Royal Navy's uh, a yacht with officers on it and um, sort of parading about, I guess. Anyway, um, it is traditional to salute the uh, RMS, uh, the Royal Naval Yacht, and uh, they failed to do so. It's that the salute's usually done with an empty cannon um, being shot off. Um, they failed to do this, so the Royal Naval uh, yacht caught up with them. I'm sure it was faster than the adventure galley, and um, uh, caused them to heave. And well, really wanted to force them to do the uh, the salute. So a bunch of the crew lined up on um, the the deck, um, right at the rail, um, with their rear ends facing uh, the Royal Naval yacht, and. Um, bent over and slapped their backsides. There's some reports that they uh, actually uh, doffed their pants and slapped their backsides a little more vigorously. Um, either way, the, uh, the Royal Naval officers didn't like this, uh, caught up with the adventure galley, boarded her, and pressed into service about one-third of her crew, which left um, Kid without the crew he needed just as he was leaving the harbor, necessitating his trip to New York. And it seemed to only go downhill from there for Captain Kidd. It's, uh, it, yes. His story is so interesting, too. It's just one thing after another for this guy. Yeah, if, if things did not work out well for Kidd at all. Um, and once again, here is a, uh, um, a fellow who most people believe was a pirate who, if you ask around Maine, seems to have buried treasure on every island and every coastal shore in Maine. Um, and And... The true story is, I, I think, is is so much more interesting. Yeah. We try to tell it as succinctly as possible in the book, but with as much detail as we can. And I think uh, people that read that chapter about Kid will come out with a whole new understanding of him. Yeah, I do too. And you know, there's one, and again, I'm not going to give it away too much, but the where he's in a almost an accidental skirmish with another ship, just because it seems to be a misunderstanding. On the high seas, it's 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 great. I uh, highly encourage 
that's great. It's a great read just for that. So many interesting stories in this book. And you also have one of my favorite pirates to read about in the book, and that's Black Bart, or about the Alamee Roberts. And they're supposed, there's a supposed treasure related to him in Maine that was found, and there may still be treasure around related to Black Bart? Yes, the, um, uh, the, the treasure was apparently discovered, according to several reports, in the 1930s, and um, I bet there were supposed to be four boxes concealed there, and uh, only two boxes were recovered, according to those reports. Um, now, the area where this treasure was found has been subsequently been bulldozed, landscaped, redeveloped, and it's a town boat landing. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, there is that, that possibility still exists. Uh, I, I have a feeling it will never be found, but it's certainly a nice place to visit, take a walk, and wonder if you can be, wonder if you're walking over buried treasure or not. Yeah. You know, and earlier we had talked about the enticing life of the sweet trade or joining a pirate tri- ship, but life aboard the ship could also have collateral damage, such as Fort Loyal. Could you give us a little bit about that story, that backstory? Oh yes, uh, you, in, in terms of the the, the, the pirates there, um, they, they were sort of they just suddenly became pirates as one plan went awry, and uh, and they developed another plan. And um, in the process of doing what pirates do, um, they removed some um, items from Fort Loyal, including seven of its soldiers. And uh, that left it poorly, uh, poorly staffed and, and um, a little bit undergunned, for lack of a better term, um, when there was a serious raid from uh, North American Indians and uh, and Canadian forces, um, and, uh, uh, and and may have led to the ultimate defeat at the fort, or at least contributed to it. Um, the, one of the things the pirates took was an artillery piece, and of course the Native Americans and the French uh, didn't have any artillery. Um, and an additional artillery piece could have made a difference in that battle. Hmm. You never know what decisions you make how it's going to affect someone else. Yeah, I my my favorite twist on the Fort Loyal story is the fact that thousands of people walk by that place every day and have no idea what happened there. Yeah. <laughs> It's one of those pieces of history. Um, every town seems to have one, but some are more interesting than others. And this one is definitely one of those that's a bit more interesting than others, or a lot more interesting uh, in this case. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time with you, because I know you're a pirate buff. Let's clear up some pirate misconceptions, if you don't mind. If I have a sure. series of questions. Okay, so... If we watch these movies from the Errol Flynn time down through Johnny Depp's time playing pirates, you think you know what a pirate ship looks like. So all pirate ships were all huge three-masted vessels, right? Not not even close. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what would they look like? Um, the uh, one, one of the most popular vessels for pirates operating from shorelines in um, the Caribbean was a dugout canoe. Um, that they would uh, slide up next to merchant ships in the middle of the night with and clamber aboard and take the ship at night with nothing but a dugout canoe. Another popular vessel um, in that neighborhood was a Bermuda sloop, which was a very shallow drafted uh, sloop, which is a single masted vessel. 
um, easy to maneuver, um, can cross over areas that deeper draft ships can't get to, and you need it to be fast so you can catch up with the vessel you're pursuing. Uh, Bermuda sloops were generally not that big, around 70 feet or so. Um, and uh, a lot of the other ships that the pirates took, uh, and they would basically take a ship and convert it to a pirate vessel. They were always, of course, they always favored faster ships. Um, we're not we're not that large, and when you consider there might be seventy pirates on that seventy foot Bermuda sloop, that's uh, that's a pretty crowded little boat there. Um, but the more pirates you have, the the better the odds are of your enemy or your your victim um, giving up without a fight. Yes. Um, now there there were some larger pirate ships down there in the Carolinas. Uh, Blackbeard's Queen Anne's Revenge was uh, a pretty large platform, uh, formerly a slaving vessel. And um, Black Sam Bellamy's ship, the Lida, which mm-hmm. is sunk off of Wellfleet, Massachusetts, was also a large three-masted ship. And you mentioned Black Bart Roberts. He sailed quite a far distance in, in his travels, and he also favored uh, three-masted uh, vessels known as barks. Yes. Now, all the pirates, they after they're done raiding their ships, they wanted to send everybody down to Jay, Davy Jones's locker, right? They wanted to kill their enemies. Generally not. Um, the first thing they would do is try to recruit people from the merchant ship onto their own crew. And then the second thing they would do is identify people, uh, crew on the merchant ship, like um, navigators um, and surgeons and uh, musicians. And uh, if they didn't join the pirate crew, they were pressed into service on the pirate crew um, because they had a skill set that the pirates uh, required or liked. Um and then generally speaking, um, most of the pirates would simply uh, set them adrift um, in one of their small boats. That's if they were taking their ship. Or they would sort of trade their old pirate ship, which might have been smaller, if they wanted to upgrade to the ship they just captured. Um, but generally, there wasn't uh, a lot of slaughter. There was just a threat thereof. Now, that doesn't hold true with all pirates. In the area without laws, um, you're going to have some psychotics out there. Um, but many pirates... Uh, uh, used a threat of force or violence, not actual force or violence, to uh, to accomplish their business. Blackbeard, for instance, is never known to have killed anybody until that final battle over in Ocracoke. Hmm. And speaking of battles, pirates only use swords, right, for hand-to-hand combat? No, no, no. Pirates uh, were quite adept with firearms. Um, the term buccaneer, which is an anglicized term for um, the French word buccaneer, uh, which in turn is based on um, individuals that used bucans, which were green wood smokers, um, on the island of Hispaniola, which is now the Dominican Republic and Haiti, depending on which side of the island you're on. Um, these guys, um, they would they would land on these islands. Um, they were basically castaways and they would hunt for um, livestock that the Spanish had populated the islands with in case the Spanish wanted to come back and find a meal. And so they would smoke the meat from these animals, which are usually cows or uh, goats um, uh, on the shore and sell that meat to passing ships. And these fellows became known as buccaneers. Uh, to engage in this trade, they used uh, smoothbore muskets. And they became very adept at accuracy with their muskets and probably taking uh, a lot of care as to making sure their ammunition was perfectly circular and fit down the barrel exactly and 
uh, paying a lot of attention to how their powder was made and uh, how much powder they used and things like that. And uh, later on, when the Spanish came and kicked the Buccaneers off of uh, Hispaniola, and they ended up joining the pirate ranks, uh, they were considered very valuable for being able to clear decks from a distance of 100 to 200 yards, which is a lot of accuracy for a smoothbore musket. Um, you couldn't keep a man on the quarter deck, which is where you had the helm of, of a ship, when you had four Buccaneers taking turns shooting at him, um, because that's how accurate the Buccaneers were. It made it very easy to take over a vessel without having to use larger artillery. And you know what, Greg, and since I'm asking all these questions, I also want to let everybody know that these answers they can find in your book, too, because these are questions, you know, you can learn about in your book. You have a you have a chapter on weapons in the book, which is very interesting and great. You're an all-encompassing pirate book. It's very good. Yeah, we were, we were very fortunate um, in that the, uh, nearby is an excellent collection of uh, pirate firearms maintained by George and Joni Gray of Camden, Maine. And uh, he was generous enough to allow me to uh, photograph most of his collection. And so we have some, and I, I also, many, many years ago in another lifetime, I was a police evidence photographer in Los Angeles. So um, I'm used to taking pictures that can be used for evidence. And we were able to get some very nice, very detailed pictures of uh, the weapons in George's collection. And um, which illustrate um, the, what people went through in those days to use a firearm. And uh, there's also uh, bladed weapons as well, swords. That's unbelievable. You had that. I mean, just the fact that you had access to that to be able to do that for the book is very lucky for you and for us who are reading the book and want to learn more about pirates. Now, if someone wanted to experience a bit of a pirate lifestyle, in 21st century Maine, can they still do so? Yes, there are a number of events um, that include uh, pirate reenactors. Uh, we have also have a large and very robust pirate reenactor group here, of which I used to be a member. Um, and these folks have a 57-foot um, a topsail yawl, which is a, uh, a two-masted vessel. It's armed with, I believe, eight cannon. Um, they also have shore artillery as well, and uh, they're also trained to use black powder firearms and swords. They're trained to do sword fighting, um, and, uh, and they, they appear at a number of events normally held here in Maine. Of course, this year, we're not too sure about what's happening with those events right now, but, um, but there's a, a three major events here in Maine that, that uh, these guys can be seen at, and if people want to Google... Um, as someone myself who used to do a pirate event, um, they have events all over the country. You'd be surprised where they have pirate events. Yeah, and Greg, I know you know right now as we're recording this, and uh, hopefully I'll have this out tonight for you as we record it on uh, this Monday, April 27th. Um, you're also a tour guide there, right? And I know right now tours aren't happening, but we hope to have those back up and running soon. Um, do you want give to uh, give a plug for your tour guide business? Sure. We're um, uh, the company I do marketing for and also assist as a guide with, especially on maritime tours, is called Red Cloak Tours. We do a variety of tours here in Maine, um, haunted history tours, maritime history tours, uh, cemetery tours. And, um, and that's throughout uh, Midcoast Maine from um, 
Bar Harbor all the way down to Bath. We're also able to customize tours for people if they're interested in that. And um, we can be reached online at redcloaktours.com or by telephone 207-380-3806. Because of the current situation, we're developing new tours, and those include teletours and virtual tours, which um, will be COVID-appropriate. That sounds great. And has one former tour guide to another tour guide. I wish you the best of luck this season. Well, thank you very much. I, I, what kind of tours did you do? I was a tour guide here in Charleston. Well, Greg, thanks for being on. It was great to spend part of my day talking with you about pirate history. I really did enjoy it. My pleasure. And um, I look forward to hearing this at some point. And uh, I hope that we uh, we rouse people's curiosity, uh, not only about pirates, but also about the book that's coming out. And thank you, the audience, for listening. You can pre-order Greg's book at ArcadiaPublishing.com or at your local bookstore. And while you're at ArcadiaPublishing.com, enter in your zip code to the search bar to see what books Arcadia Publishing and the History Press has on your town, state, or region. If you have an idea for a book and you want to tell your local history story, reach out to Arcadia by visiting ArcadiaPublishing.com, scroll on down to the bottom of the page, and click the Make Me an Author link. It's a first step in writing your own history book and telling the history of your town, state, or region. If you have questions for me or episode suggestions, shoot me an email at arcadiaauthorconversations at gmail.com. As always, I want to thank my pals, Jay and Bill's Unnamed Band Project, for the show's theme song. Remember, you can visit them and do visit them on Facebook at Jay and Bill's Unnamed Band Project. I'll talk to you next week.